Welcome to the HC Insider Podcast, a podcast dedicated to the commodities sector and the people within it. I'm your host, Paul Chapman. Today we're talking with Bruce Usher about his newest book, Investing in an Era of Climate Change, published by Columbia University Press. The book came out in October of this year and is a clear-eyed handbook on how individuals, businesses, and investment professionals can tackle investment decisions in an era of climate change, energy transition, and decarbonization. It's also a call to arms in how investment will determine whether we successfully navigate climate change and the opportunities and risks therein. Bruce was previously CEO of Eco Securities, prior to being acquired by JP Morgan in 2009, and is now a professor of professional practice at Columbia University. As always, if you enjoy the show, please do leave us a positive review, and I hope you enjoy the episode. Bruce, welcome to the show. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. So I'm, I'm excited to have this discussion, talking about your book, Investing in an Era of Climate Change, which I think, uh, having read it, I feel very much as a, a sort of clear-eyed handbook for investing in a time of energy transition and obviously climate change and disruption. Before we sort of dig into how you structured the book and, and the various topics that you cover, can you just give us some sense of scale? I mean, this is, you characterize it, the first few chapters talk about, you know, essentially putting the energy transition decarbonization into a similar vein as the agricultural revolution, the industrial revolution, and therefore the scale, the, just the, the trillions of dollars it will take over the next few decades if we are to seriously tackle the imminent threat of, of climate change? So the scale is both extraordinary and also manageable. And this one, this is one of the issues around when the topic of climate change comes up, people tend to immediately sort of be at one extreme or the other around the topic. And like many of the issues I write about in the book, in fact, there's, it's, it's often lies somewhere in the middle. To put it in a context, the big picture is we've spent approximately 300 years building a global economy that's, first of all, been pretty successful in the sense that the average human today is 50 times as well off as the average human pre-industrial revolution. Most of the world now has enough to eat. And that's an extraordinary accomplishment, really, after you know tens of thousands of years without that. The catch, of course, I think pretty much everybody knows this at this point, is that it's unsustainable. And it's unsustainable simply because the economy we built emits greenhouse gases in a volume that will at some point dramatically warm the planet and make what we've accomplished unsustainable. And so we've spent three centuries building that global economy. We now have about three decades, about 30 years, to rebuild the entire global economy, essentially to decarbonize, to get us down to what is termed net zero greenhouse gas emissions, somewhere between 30 and 50 years. And, And I think that that analysis and that forecast is is pretty pretty accurate at this point. Mm. The climate science around it, I think, is very very solid. So, so to answer your question directly, that's an extraordinary challenge, right? To completely remake our global economy—not just energy, but food production, cement, steel, every, almost everything—to get us to net zero in thirty years. On the other hand, just to be clear, that investment requires something around 100 to $150 trillion, which again, sounds like an extraordinary number. It is a big number. 
But if you break that down on a year-by-year basis, about three to six trillion per year, and in fact, we're already investing probably somewhere close to half of that already. And if you sort of look at the depth of the capital markets, how much capital do we have to invest? Are we capable of actually decarbonizing the global economy? And the answer is pretty much a clear yes, with a caveat. The caveat being that in developing countries, that capital is, is isn't currently available. So in other words, it's an extraordinary transformation we're going to go through. It's going to change pretty much everything in the world of business and the economy. But it's also achievable. Which, yeah, we had... Um... Dominic Boyer on a professor at Rice a few a couple of weeks back and talking about I guess the impact of climate change and, and some of the more scary sort of non-linear effects that we're already seeing. Uh, we discussed in that episode new highlight in the book those previous revolutions have ultimately been driven by economics and an alignment between human greed however you want to characterize it capital man and yeah. and the technology this one has a couple of challenges in it one which is the tragedy of the commons which is relatively well known and you know the problem with externalities the other was as mark carney highlighted in the speech that the tragedy of the horizon and I, I kind of want to add the tragedy of sort of the chronic over the acute can you just frame those up for us as well those are those are the sort of the, the at the moment some real significant barriers that as a society we're trying to overcome there are tremendous barriers and i want to begin to that in a second before we get to that, i i do i think it's important to recognize that these massive shifts in 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 you know how we live as, as humans the global economy always come with massive disruption. So we sort of gloss over the fact the Industrial Revolution itself was, was traumatic in many ways for many societies. It wasn't that everybody was suddenly better off and, 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 and happy. <laughs> there was a lot, a lot of disruption and, 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 and issues that surrounded that. But you're right, this time around, it's, 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 it's different. The tragedy of the commons, of course, is, is the underlying problem of climate change, that no matter where you make greenhouse gases in the world, it affects everyone. They, they, the atmospheres are global commons. It's a really big commons. Uh, and until recently, it was so large that it really didn't matter if you or I or everybody else was, was polluting a bit with some greenhouse gases. At some point, though, of course, the commons is limited, and we are, and we've now we're reaching those limits. So the problem with the tragedy of the commons is, is the only way you address it historically is that those who share the commons agree to some set of, of rules, usually around sort of ownership practices of the commons. And that's usually some government entity sets of rules, you know, it could be uh, restrictions on, 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 on use of the commons, pollution, it could be taxes and so on. Well, at a global basis, we've never, we've never agreed on anything at such a global level. It's so fundamental. And if anything, in the time I've worked on climate change, which is now two decades, 20 years now, our willingness to cooperate on global issues has diminished, in fact, and, and the, the ability of nation states to sort of work together to solve any problem, not just climate change, but say COVID pandemic or pick any other issue, it's, it's certainly not gotten any better. So this tragedy of the commons is, is, is an issue for us. That being said, over time, people tend to sort out the tragedy of the commons because ultimately it's in everyone's best interest to do so eventually. You, you sort of work it out. But that brings us to our second problem, the tragedy of the horizon, which, which you identified. So the issue with climate change is if we had a long time to address this, 100 years, 200 years, you know, if we had plenty of time to work it out, it would be very disruptive, just like the Industrial Revolution was, but we'd, we'd muddle through and we'd sort it out. 
as you pointed out, we have this tragedy of the horizon, which is we don't have much time. We, we, we've got this 30, maybe 40, 50 years at most to, to address it. And that's both very little time and also too much time <laughs> in the sense that what Mark Carney was pointing out is, is it's, 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 it's far enough out that most people, most investors, most politicians, for sure, most humans, you know, we, we just don't deal in that sort of time frame. We, we, we can't see that far ahead and, and take action today that's challenging and painful. And so this is, this is when you get right down to this is the problem around climate change. Uh, will we address it? Yes. Will we address it quickly enough in that horizon? Hard to say at this point. It's, mm. it's a big maybe. Which is that sort of, you know, it's, um, I think he characterizes, it imposes costs on future generations, which current generations don't want to pay, right? And I kind of alluded to that. That's right. The, the yeah. sort of the chronic over the acute is kind of, when you have an acute event like COVID, you know, you see real meaningful action in just you know, incredible governmental and fiscal policy action on it. But when you have kind of the death by a thousand cuts, which climate change at least is currently, that will change as you know those nonlinear effects kick in. You know, it's just much harder to get motivation. Yeah, and then the other issue that comes with that is that there are trade-offs, and actually we saw this with the COVID pandemic as well. You know, there's there's always there, there's always going to be some trade-off between addressing the issue and the cost of it. You know, addressing or not addressing the issue. And with climate change, those trade-offs are extraordinarily complex, and they're complex because they are multi-generational, as you said. You know. <laughs> The, the present generation versus future generations, who, who, who has to pay for that. They're complex because of the issue of who globally should be paying for it. And they're complex because the priorities that we have differ from person to person. They differ because you know, some of us are, are better off than others. Uh, so we can uh, you know, afford, say, to, uh, to pay a little more now, say, for transitioning our, our, our energy use. Others cannot. And some, for some people, it's it's actually truly impossible. They literally, it's it's they they're, they're just they're just hanging on today, just just getting by. So these trade offs are complex, and they vary person to person, country to country. I guess my takeaway, or the 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 sort of theme of the book is, is obviously investing is going to be the critical solution to climate change. Uh, when you look at the other options, and we'll come on to that, uh, which are also going to be involved, but some of them are certainly less palatable and less achievable, it is going to be a major driver. And it's also a major opportunity as well. And really, the book gives this sort of framework to think about why there is, where there are these investing trends, how they're structured, and what the options are. But one of the, you sort of start off and talk about that bit of the history, right? We sort of had the Kyoto Protocol in 97, then you had COP the Paris Agreement 2015, and kind of this accelerating awareness within society, within within um, the investing community, that this was becoming a real event and a real challenge and opportunity. And you talk about these sort of four big trends that were all accelerating. And I like the, the Hemingway quote of, wealth is lost gradually, and then all of a sudden. Um, and it's sort of similar to this so can you talk about those those big trends i think the first one you highlight is the the physical risk that people were experiencing in their portfolios so that that first trend has sort of become apparent to everyone that the physical manifestation of climate change is starting to become increasingly apparent and this is both very very troublesome and worrying 
but in some ways is important to this this decarbonization economy because people are starting to become a lot more aware. You know, when you get in these these extraordinary heat waves and more violent storms and and wildfires and the like, it certainly gets people's attention to to address the issues. That physical one's the first kind of the obvious. Uh, the second one that's starting to change is is social norms. So because of this physical manifestation, you're starting to see people, particularly younger people, getting increasingly concerned and active about the issue and pushing for change. And that's unsurprising given that younger younger generations gonna have to, to live with this. Those two things, the physical ch- uh, manifestation and the changing social norms are starting to spur more government action. Now the government actions inconsistent policies come and go a bit with 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 governments but globally the trend line is clearly towards more government action there has been more it's not always at the national level sometimes at the regional or state level even local you know cities taking action but we're seeing more and more of that and certainly here in the US the inflation reduction act is 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 a, is a mass piece of legislation around this so we're seeing more government action and the fourth trend is actually the most important one and the one that's least well understood and that trend is around innovation for products that decarbonize global economy so the the big change in the 20 years of working in this space is that 20 years ago we, we we you know the climate science was already pretty solid even 20 years ago we, we understood what the problem was and where we were headed what we didn't understand very well 20 years ago was how to actually decarbonize without destroying the global economy. In other words, how do you how do you continue to to have the benefits of, of food production and transport and, and, and housing and heating and all these things with dramatically lower and eventually zero emissions? And 20 years ago, we, we didn't have those solutions. They literally didn't exist, or if they did, they existed in, in a way that was not scalable. So renewable energy, you know, you if you added up all the solar capacity on the planet 20 years ago, the power production was less than one coal-fired plant. Right? It's about one gigawatt. It was nothing. And the reason for that was it was really expensive on a really small scale. Well, fast forward to today, as most people are now becoming aware, renewable energy, wind, and solar are, in most parts of the world, the cheapest form of power generation and increasingly becoming cheaper. And now at scale, you know, last year or something like mm-hmm. about more than 100 coal-fired plants worth of power was built in the solar sector alone. So 20 years on, we have these extraordinary products that are both zero emissions and the best products in the market. And we can say the same thing for electric vehicles, by the way. Electric vehicles pretty much didn't exist 20 years ago. Now this is the fast growing segment of the car market. Why? Not because there's zero emission, though that's a really good thing for the planet, but because they're a better product. People drive good to, EVs, good to drive, yeah. Love EVs. Yeah. So you've got these products. If you take just renewables and electric transport together, and if you scale those globally and we're on path to doing so that gets us about halfway to net zero that reduces about half of global emissions and that's extraordinary that's that's really something very powerful so that's the fourth big trend and and the other technology is to get us the other half the the rest of the other 50 percent we need to reduce uh, those are no longer pie in the sky ideas those technologies green hydrogen direct air capture carbon capture many many other technologies that exist today they are beyond the idea stage, even beyond the lab stage, many of them are out there, sort of pilot plants, early commercial production. They are not competitive. They're not at scale yet. They're not competitive with the incumbent polluting products. But again, there's sort of a path there that will, over the next couple of decades, take us to 
solving the other half of the emissions as well. So those four trends together is this big change. Yeah, and I think that the point about those four trends is that outside of kind of whether you know ESG scoring and, and all this type of thing, actually those are trends that are whether you're sat over and investing in a portfolio, whether you're sat as a, a on the executive committee of a of a company, whatever it might be, or even just an oil no, an oil trader. Those same four risks exist and all of them are being you know in any in any capacity right whether it's just from fires or whatever but all of them are being in some way catalyzed by climate change and again it kind of the, the what i like about the book is you know if companies aren't asking themselves these questions or individual investors aren't or private equity groups or whatever then you're really starting to stack the risks up because whether it's physical risk that the pace of that is just increasing rapidly as we are all seeing you know you've got innovation which is lots of money is flowing into this sector and we'll come on to that right which is also catalyzing innovation that's right and lowering costs and then you've got you know what we definitely have seen over the last couple of years is evolving social norms i mean a lot of large corporations are making decisions purely based on you know the changing social norms of their customers right and to the detriment of profit etc so all of those things, I think that you know, that's correct. Customers and and employees and employees as well. Both both those two really important categories are really pushing customers. Which is then leading into the government action we're seeing, right? You know, disclosures on climate risk, that's right. et cetera, is all is all there. So you then mentioned you, you have a section talking about, as you say, like most of these technologies are around right now. It's about deployment. It's about lowering costs, etc. And some are still pie in the sky. And we'll, you know, we have covered on the show how. Some of those more pie in the sky projects might be killed off by higher interest rates and some of the cooling down of that sector. You do mention though that obviously a, a bit of a bogeyman in this sector is is carbon capture and storage. You do sort of point out, which just struck me because it's not something we've covered yet, and I, I do want to do an episode on it. Is we aren't going to make the two degree hurdle or keep it below two degrees if we don't actually start taking some carbon out of the atmosphere i.e getting heavily invested in carbon capture that's right so the, the book covers you know many different technologies i don't get that deep in each as, as you know it's 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 uh, and I, sometimes i get criticism for that you know why don't you write more about nuclear and more about carbon capture and i'm like well <laughs> you, you, it would be a lot it would be a three thousand page book instead of 300 pages i don't think anybody wants to read that but each of these technologies has an important role to play. And it's, it is too early to say at this point, you know, which ones for sure are going to be an important part of, of, of the solution. But it's hard, to, it's hard to pencil out getting us below two degrees without some carbon capture at some point. And the reason for that is, is kind of simple and, and also daunting. We have to get to net zero. And zero is a really hard number. And it's a hard number because, as I mentioned earlier, pretty much everything we do as humans emits greenhouse gases. And therefore, there's almost certainly residual emissions in, in, in virtually every business. And some businesses it may have significant residual emissions. It's just very, very hard to get anywhere close to zero. And so at the end of the day, you somehow have to take those emissions out of the atmosphere. Now, the good news is there are many ways to do that. There's a very simple, well-understood way to do that, which is, is is planting trees or biomass that through photosynthesis absorbs CO2. So we, we have some very traditional solutions, but they come with a lot of challenges as well. This, uh, you know, the whole idea we just plant a lot of trees and solve the problem is, is yeah, wildly atmospheric unrealistic. Atmospheric carbon uh, is very different. To, that is, yeah. 
it's very different. There's a lot of challenges around land use and so on and food production, things like this. But but that will probably be a piece of solution. And then you've got your your much more sophisticated technologies, which actually direct air capture or carbon capture and storage before emissions. And those two technologies, CCS and and and, and DAC are they are in the category today of technologically feasible. Pilot plants exist, but not a competitive cost-effective solution today. Will they be in the future? I think I think they'll have to be. I think they will be at some point. Yeah, and I just wanted to put a pin in that because I think that is an it's an interesting point that you make that actually the, these are going to be needed. And we talk about some of the accelerants in, in a minute. But, okay, so do you then the section of the book which is you know i think is actually really useful for people because there's a lot of conflation a lot of people using their own terms for what they want to mean it to mean for themselves etc and you get greenwashing etc but you frame up sort of there are sort of these four roughly speaking buckets of how people are approaching investing in an era of climate change and those are you know risk mitigation divestment ESG, and we'll get on to that, and then sort of thematic and impact investing. Just on the risk mitigation side, this is just, you know, being aware of those, if you're talking about pure investment theory, those assets in your portfolio, those companies that are going to be most affected by a rise in those physical risks. That's right. So physical risks and transition risks. Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. So there's a lot of risks. And people, of course, focus on the physical because that's the obvious one. But there's also transition risks. So if you think, well, at the end of the day, we're not going to be using fossil fuels, you might want to think a lot about, you know, what does that mean for, for a fossil fuel company? It doesn't mean that those companies necessarily have no role to play in the future. For example, if you do think green hydrogen is going to be an important part of, of the solution here, and there's, it's a very interesting technology, uh, the oil and gas companies may have a very big role to play in that. They're, they're pretty good at moving molecules, and that's what kind of green hydrogen is. But, of course, you sort of want to think about the risk and reward of, of that versus where those companies are today. So the risk analysis is, is unsurprisingly what many investors start with. Yeah, and you have uh, Larry Fink's comment, you know, climate risk is investing risk. You then move on to sort of some of the more sort of challenging, well, controversial in some cases, challenging um, themes. So you've, you've first got divestment, right, which, and I've, I've recently moderated a panel and, and went to an ESG conference where, you know, you had very different approaches to this. Um, <laughs> you yeah. know, like, and, and essentially, I guess, I'm getting this right, divestment is, okay, well, if you, you know, are you going to then, drop those holdings that are most affected by climate risk or more i think more likely bigger emitters bigger polluters etc and can you just give us a you know what is the controversy around divestment and and kind of what are what are the the various camps well there are a lot of controversies around it i would say one one controversy is is the sort of hypocrisy that comes with it in other words a lot of people say well i won't invest say in a fossil fuel company, but they still use fossil fuels. So there's an argument that one's being hypocritical around that. The counter argument to that is, you know, you shouldn't profit from it. That you know that this is damaging to humanity. And we do know that. We do know that emissions of greenhouse gases are are a serious problem. It's one thing to use. It's quite another to actually profit from from those investments. So these, these sort of morality, hypocrisy, uh, arguments go back and forth. To me, the, the key issue here is is the one that I write about in the book, which is the, the, the issue with divestment is uh, it doesn't really address climate change. We need to invest 
in solutions that decarbonize the economy, not not invest in those two. Partly because it doesn't it doesn't reduce emissions. So in other words, if if you or I don't invest in a fossil fuel company, first of all, by selling our our shares by default, someone else is buying them. Secondly, we're just mo- most companies are, are not issuing new shares, so it's secondary trade. It doesn't actually really affect the companies. And third, and most importantly, what affects emissions is is consumer use of the products. That's that's the actual emissions or industrial use of the product. It's not about who owns what shares. And so divestment really doesn't doesn't move the needle on addressing climate change. Yeah. What it does do, and I point this out in the book, is it does align one's personal values with one's investment portfolios. And I do think that's important. I, I you know, I personally there's certain things I care about very strongly beyond just climate change. And I think to myself, you know, if I really care about an issue, why would I invest in a business that makes that issue worse? You know, it just doesn't seem right to me. So I don't have a problem with people saying, you know, that's my values. I don't want to invest in fossil fuel companies. I don't want them in my portfolio. To me, that makes perfect sense. And I'd say, go go right ahead and do that. But don't fool yourself into thinking that action is going to do much to solve climate change, if anything. The HC Insider podcast is brought to you by HC Group, a retained search, intelligence and advisory firm focused solely on the global energy and commodity sector. With six locations across Asia, Europe and the Americas and over 50 consultants. To find out more, go to our website, hcgroup.global. There, you can also sign up for our HC Insider content for more interviews and white papers on relevant trends and talent impacts in the commodities world. It's interesting as well, because you sort of take the morality piece out of it, which I agree with you, is very hard to do. There is sort of the logical consequence of you saying, I firmly believe these are risks, that fossil fuels are no longer going to be the power of the next few generations. But there's sort of the divestment in the sense that I then therefore believe that the corollary is that these assets that sit on the balance sheet of all of these oil and gas companies, for example, will be stranded. You talk about that in the book, right? There, there, there should be right. a, a confluence at yeah. some point. I, I heard um, Paul Bodnar of BlackRock, the head of ESG, give a talk on this. And what he did highlight as well is, to some extent, during the pandemic, this was quite an easy layup for people, right? Because in the end, oil and gas assets over the last decade, as we've covered numerous times on this podcast, were underperforming significantly. That's right. And you and, and you contrasted that to those organisations that were leaning into well technology, right? Which typically, and this comes on to ESG, which were higher, were scoring incredibly highly on ESG because they didn't have the emissions, they could prove the governance, and they were at the leading edge of some of the social changes. But suddenly, in the last year, you've had this re divergent of as Paul Bodnar described it the world as we wish and the world as it is and a lot of these investment funds have fiduciary responsibilities it's very hard for them to say oh well now you know oil and gas is generating 20% returns you know technology <laughs> is doing the opposite there are some complexities around uh, around that and and again it's it's inter- you know that decision is no longer easy it's no longer easy for all these funds to say we solely believe in, and I guess I'm moving into ESG, ESG investing in a world where, you know, those returns aren't lining up like they had. And the thing about ESG, which which I get into the book, is unlike, you know, divestments is, is, is again, a, a values alignment. ESG, when you really get down to the heart of it, 
it's a pretty simple concept. It's simply saying, historically, when we've looked at making an investment, we've considered a multitude of factors, which are mostly financial. You, know, you look at, you look at the, 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 the financial statements, uh, the cash flows. You'd also look at management. You look at competition. You, you look at a number of factors, and then you, you, you assess whether or not to make that investment. And the concept underlying ESG is you should also take one more step in, in doing your, 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 finance, your, your analysis. In addition to all the other fundamental analysis you're doing, you should also look at environmental, social, and government's factors, the additional factors that historically have not been heavily considered, if at all. And the reason for that is that those factors are increasingly important to the value of assets. And they're increasingly important because assets historically were valued. There's a lot, there's a lot, of, a lot of research around this. Around the financials, uh, up until about the 1980s or 90s, you know, like the S&P 500, most companies' value was was pretty close to book value. Was, you, you could actually just sort of look at look at the financials and then you get the value of the company how it traded. Today, the value of most companies is based on their intangible worth. It's, it's the real values and the intangibles and the human capital and the brand and the reputation and 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 things like this and and. ESG factors can have a pretty significant impact on the intangible value of the company and well, tangibles as well over, over a longer period of time. So that, that's the original concept behind ESG. And it's really a risk management concept. It's, it's as, you know, because most of these ESG factors present risks as opposed to opportunities for companies. In other words, it's at the end of the day is, you know, a smarter form of fundamental analysis on, on, on assets. In addition to that, considering ESG factors can have social benefits by raising awareness of these issues and, and you know, uh, potentially channeling investment capital in a way that would be beneficial around issues like climate change. But the reality is, and again, I write about this in the book, is that there's a, fair, there's a lot of evidence today that suggests that ESG investing is smarter investing, that there's alpha to be gained, or if, if not alpha, that there appears to be a little bit of uh, reduction in, in risk, a little bit of re reduction in volatility of return. And for investors of fiduciary responsibility, that's, that's, that's worthwhile. That's valuable. Yeah. What there isn't much evidence around is that ESG investing actually helps solve ESG issues, <laughs> that ESG investing contributes to solving climate change. So like divestment, there are some good reasons to do it, different reasons. Divestment's a values alignment. ESG is about being a smarter uh, investor. But the evidence is not strong that ESG actually is, is all that effective in addressing climate change. Yeah, and I think it's, it's that sort of um, – there's a lot of misperception and conflation – in the, from the general public to the investment community and then within the investment community as well, right? Because you see sort of these conflicts set up between thematic investors looking at the ESG group saying, well, how can you be ESG if, you know, if you've got oil and gas in your portfolio? And actually, as you say, ESG in its purest sense is that risk. And it makes sense, right? If, if you've got good, you know, they've always looked for good governance. Good governed businesses do better. Right. We now know that by multiple studies, that right. diverse businesses do better. You've, you know, it stands to reason if you've got more ideas in a business, you're going to come up with better solutions. You know, and now with the E part, those those companies are going to be less impacted by environmental change and are less impacted by a future potential carbon price or tax. 
you know, are going to do better or at least aware of that, right? That's right. Exactly. And that's when you sort of see, I've moderated a panel where you, you know, release it as a podcast where you, you, you saw sort of the ESG investor trying to have a, you know, discussing with a thematic investor. And, you know, it just doesn't quite, there's two different goals there, which... There, there... They're very, very different strategies and very different goals. And from a climate perspective, really different outcomes. And, and that's what I read about in the book. Thematic, you're actually, you're actually now addressing climate change through thematic investing. You're also trying to do very well as an investor. And I think that there are many opportunities for these two things to, to happen together, that there are thematic investors who have both generated very, very attractive risk-adjusted returns and have clearly help us address climate change and particularly those who invest in renewable energy fall into that category. Yeah. So thematic investing. So this is the, the fourth category. I've lumped them together, but you've got thematic investing, which is saying, I believe in this scenario, this setup, and I'm going to invest in renewable technology. And they've done very well, as you say, right? Or other decarbonizing. Right. And it's not just renewables. It could be, yeah, it could be electric vehicles or, you know, if you want to invest in stuff that's, you know, riskier, it could be in new forms of energy storage, battery energy storage. It could even be green hydrogen. Yeah. Saying, look, I see really interesting investment opportunity here. I see the sector is going to grow. I, I think it's a, it's, it's a lot of potential. And in making that investment, I'm also contributing to decarbonizing the economy. So these yeah. two things are aligned. And and that's that's to me very clear. Yeah, and and what's interesting about that is we kind of know what the end point is going to be, right? Uh, will have to be, hopefully, if it's all going to you know, carry on and be be swell to live on the planet. Is your your risk there is really a sort of a regulatory risk in some sense, but more probably a technology risk, right? Are you if you're going to bet big on green hydrogen, you better be sure that you think it, you know the efficiency and the thermodynamics line up, which you know is a bit of a live debate. But, well, there's, there's, two, yeah, there's a lot of debate around, but there's two levels of that, of that challenge. The first, as you said, is clearly the challenge. In other words, is green hydrogen going to be an important part of the, the solution long term? And it's pretty hard to say at this point. There's real arguments for and against. But even once you make that decision, and let's say it's you decide, yes, this is a sector that's going to grow well. And obviously, in some sectors, that's a much easier decision to make. Say, renewables almost certainly win and solar are going to be a huge part of this. Electric vehicles almost certainly. Once you've made that decision, then the question is, well, which companies do you invest in? Which assets do you invest in? In other words, who, what will be the winners and the losers in that sector? And that that's a whole other level of, of analysis that can be very challenging. I also think it's pretty interesting because in different sectors, you see different types of companies winning. And in sectors that are really, really new and require a really massive sort of organizational shift, you see that disruptive companies tend to come out on top. And that classic example, that's Tesla. GM, Ford, uh, Mercedes, uh, you know, Volkswagen, these dominant automobile companies with extraordinary engineering capacity could have absolutely done what Tesla did. But they didn't, right? They, they waited about a decade uh, when it was so apparent at that point that OEVs were the future. And that's mostly not because of a technological challenge but because of a challenge that big companies have making organizational change yeah a lot of a lot of research showing that big companies just they just can't shift like that uh they struggle to do so and so in that case your engineers are combustion engine guys right it's the it's the the old kodak story exactly. they, they invented the the digital camera but because they were all film guys chemists you you don't see the wood for yeah. the trees you know which is being a bit unfair i doubt i would have either. exactly 
and and cannibalizing your own business is really hard. You know, yeah. it's really hard to say we're going to walk away from this industry. Now, some companies are now doing it. A classic example is clearly Tesla has won for the time being, in the sense that you know, just look at market cap and, and their growth rates. But there's an interesting counterexample going on right now with Ford, by far the most valuable product, the F-150 pickup truck, an extraordinarily successful product. In fact, almost all of Ford's profits come from that one product and decide to cannibalize their own product with a Ford F-150 Lightning. And that was a really, really aggressive move. Now, it took them a long time to make that decision, but once they made it, they, they, they've really gone, uh, gone big on it. And it seems to be working. F-150 Lightning sales, you know, they can't keep up with demand. There's, I think, a multi-year waiting list at this point, and it's extremely prof- uh, popular product. So, so it's not that a company that sort of missed out on on the disruption is, has no hope of catching up, but sometimes they do fall so far behind, like the Kodak you mentioned, that that they they could go out of business altogether. So, in some sectors, you know, the disruptor has a huge advantage. In other sectors, particularly sectors that are highly regulated, like utilities, the incumbent has a pretty big advantage, and that's where we see you know disruptors popping up, making some money, eating into the incumbent's business so model a little bit, but ultimately the incumbent, the, in this case, a utility, maybe slow to change, but eventually makes those changes and, and ends up pretty dominant. In the long yeah, run. well, as Bill Nussie, Bill Nussie came on the podcast and said that talking precisely about change and disruption in, in, the, in the utility industry, and obviously they have a very powerful lobby and uh, a lot of, uh, you know, monopolistic, but that, and I, again, I just encourage people to read the book because I think it's fascinating because there's also, you know, there's sometimes in some of this disruption first movers don't work either right but you know and as i say right. yeah. the audience is largely a commodities set so i think there's an idea that they sell shovels in the gold rush right invest in the lithium and the cobalt yeah yeah exactly and what did it say given, given your audience around commodities and obviously the, the book doesn't get too deep in commodities at all it just sort of mentions the ones that are being used in these products is one of the one of the points i, I make in the book is that these sectors are connected and few people look at them that way. You know, you have people sort of focus on renewables or focus on the EV sector. And these sectors are obviously very, very different on the surface. But almost everything around decarbonization is connected. And if you really want to sort of play, play the chess game a few, a few steps ahead, you got to think about how, how these connections affect each other. So, for example, what's going on in the EV sector is going to affect the renewables energy sector because the growth in, 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 in demand for batteries will ultimately lead to more energy storage, which will address the intermittency issue in, in renewables. More renewables growth will affect green hydrogen industry because you need cheap power to produce green hydrogen. More use of green hydrogen allows us to decarbonize things like steel industry, which also happens to affect the electric vehicle industry and so on. So these sectors, they're all very much connected in this decarbonization that's going to go over in the next couple of decades. And it's very complex. <laughs> so I think as an investor and certainly anyone who's in commodities that are affected by this, this transition, you need to think about what's going on in a specific sector. You know, obviously, for example, if you're looking at lithium, what's going on in energy storage and, and the, the electric vehicle market is, is the direct driver of, of demand for lithium and, and what's going on in that commodity. But the indirect drivers, like what's going on in renewable energy, are also going to ultimately impact uh, the the price of lithium over over time. So we sort of look need to look at at from from all those angles. And it kind of the the flip side of that it, it goes back to that Hemingway quote, right? That if you aren't looking really closely at this, 
you know, you could suddenly find a tipping point where you, yeah, you, the electrification of everything happens very quickly. You have a long period of gradual change, and then suddenly, you know, those assets are stranded. You know, if you haven't divested, etc. So it is, and again, I, I, I feel for everyone in this because I think it's just so complex. It's such a volatile environment, especially when you layer on geopolitics. You let you know all of the other things going on in the world at the moment. Trying to navigate and understand and position correctly, whether it's the organisation that you run or you're in, or whether it's the uh, you know how you're trying to manage your retirement or get investment returns and alpha for your for your clients. It's just a really complex world, and and the the ground can shift slowly, but also potentially seismically when everything's connected like that. Exactly. And that's the real challenge here. It's one thing for me to write a book that explains these trends and the implications of these trends and believe absolutely what I, what I, what I wrote will, will manifest itself over a period of time. But day to day or, or, or month to month, there's a lot of other noise out there that, that affects uh, investor returns. And the classic example that you know, we talked a few minutes ago about, about the price of oil for you for years, price of oil is very low or all fossil fuels. Uh, not a good sector to be investing in. In the past year, of course, it's dramatically changed. Well, what changed? But change is not the underlying trends. The underlying trends are still very much the same, which is, you know, we, we're going to pretty soon have declining demand for all fossil fuels, not just coal. But what changed was was a war. <laughs> a war, uh, the largest land war in Europe since the Second World War. And, and the, you know, the geopolitical implications of that war are pretty significant. And pretty hard to sort of plan for that uh as 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 an investor so to your point it's very challenging working out both the the longer term trends and the implications as an investor and layering in the 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 day-to-day uh realities of, of, of the market and i think and again it comes back to why i really enjoy the book is it has these the the philosophy and the emphasis and the the sort of the the framework understanding, but you also go into sort of the, the mechanics as well. Like I, I, before, we just talk on to sort of the products out there because you know I think that is interesting. And again, I would actually just encourage people to read it because I think it it explains in, into the various tax credits and recs and all these things that are available in the investment suite right now. But you do mention impact first investing, which is kind of like the the supercharged thematic investing, and this is really the purview of the the very the elite, the very wealthy groups that don't have to worry about fiduciary responsibilities to a series of clients. But this is sort of your Bill Gates, right, who can go in there and really sort of accelerate the investment in initially uneconomical technologies. There are some issues there around distortions. Can you just? Give us a quick couple of minutes on that because I do think that's quite interesting. Yeah, so that fifth strategy is is unusual strategy because it's it's not about getting market rate returns or trying to you know trying to maximize risk adjusted returns. It's actually being willing to either take lower returns or more often just being willing to take a lot more risk. And therefore, anyone who has fiduciary responsibility cannot follow an impact first strategy. And as a result there are very few impact first investors out there and they tend to be ultra wealthy. And as you mentioned, Bill Gates, a classic example of that. So while they're a relatively small group of investors, they're an incredibly important group of investors when it comes to climate change, because there are many technologies out there today that are not yet commercially competitive with the incumbent polluting technologies. They're certainly not yet at scale. And the only way we get to the point where they may be is 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 with investment. 
And that investment could, could come in many forms. It could come from government subsidies, and sometimes it does, for example. But at the end of the day, you almost always need some early stage investors who are willing to put up risk capital, essentially venture capital, but venture capital that's, that's taking on extreme risk over very long periods of time. So one of the things Bill Gates has done, he's put up a billion dollars of his money and also got a lot, many of his wealthy friends to put up uh, several billion more, is not only are they investing in these risky products, but they're willing to take a 20-year time horizon in those investments. Now, that doesn't mean that Gates and the others in, in Breakthrough Energy Ventures will not make money. In fact, some of the things he's investing look like they're going to be pretty successful. And maybe over many decades, they will make a great deal of money. But the point around impact first investing is they're taking really outsized risks that a you know, conventional investor would, would, would never do, even, even a venture investor. But for addressing climate change, this is extraordinarily important because these technologies some of these newest technologies, say decarbonizing cement or even elements of green hydrogen today, or really uh, advanced uh, energy storage using uh, different technologies from lithium-ion battery and so on. Those investments, even if most of them fail, the couple that succeed could really revolutionize uh, industries and have an outsized impact uh, going forward. And then once once those technologies are, are, are proven out, then you can get into thematic you know, thematic investors and ultimately perhaps, uh, you know, ESG and more conventional investors uh, moving into those sectors. Yeah, and blended finance and so forth. The next section you go through investing in different products, you know, I don't think we have time to cover that here in detail, but you talk about real assets and opportunities around renewables, land, etc. And then obviously financial assets, VC, P, etc. I just want to touch you sort of in that section, you do have a, a, a mini section where you talk about the impact of pricing of carbon. And that's something that we've touched on a number of times is that, you know, we've, we've obviously got a sort of a mishmash of compliance markets in Europe and a couple of elsewhere, and then the voluntary markets. But there seems to be this general consensus that if we could get a price for carbon, that would solve for a lot of the uncertainty from investors and investment and 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 really be an accelerator towards tackling decarbonization. It would. And and the economists will explain to us why price of carbon changes behavior and and, and in this case it certainly would, since today the price on carbon in most markets, in other words, the price for emitting CO2 and other greenhouse gas in the atmosphere is essentially zero. So if there's no price on it, why would my behavior change, except for some of the reasons we talked about earlier, sort of around morality and things. Once there's a price, behavior does change. That being said, the caveat, we, we, it's very clear at this point that in many cases, particularly in, in the U.S. And, and developed wealthier countries, that just pricing carbon doesn't dramatically change our emissions. For example, if you increase, you know, you put a tax on gasoline, gas use doesn't go down that much. And so while pricing carbon would certainly help change behavior, it's not going to make a huge difference. What would make a big difference is pricing carbon not through a tax, but through a cap. In other words, literally capping the amount of emissions that companies can emit and allowing them to offset their emissions through a carbon credit market. Carbon credit markets are both really important to addressing climate change and really difficult to actually implement successfully. They're really important because a few minutes ago we talked about the fact we have to get to this net zero. And zero is a really hard number. Well, one of the ways to get to net zero is to say, okay, those who can't get to zero, 
can offset their emissions with those who can actually get below zero for those who can capture carbon in various ways and reduce it that way. And that carbon offset is what we call the, the credit market. And that mechanism, that one business that has too much pollution, another business who can reduce it more than is required, this is a very efficient way of allocating capital and resources globally and actually a really smart way of helping us address climate change. The challenge is how do you actually set the rules to do that on a global basis when countries are, are not cooperating very well around any, any sort of rules around climate change? And when it comes to reducing emissions, those, 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 who, are act, you know, those who are getting the credits, those who are doing these carbon credit projects, there has to be some sort of regulatory framework in place that actually allows us to measure those pro projects and ensure that the reductions actually happened and are what is called additional. In other words, that carbon wasn't going to be removed and now is being removed to create the credit. Otherwise, that doesn't help us get to mm. net zero. Yeah, There is no regulatory regime out there. There are in certain places in Europe, they've cooperated to create this EU emissions trading system and California have a little regime. China has a, a carbon market as well, but there's no international market. And so what's filled the void is voluntary markets. In other words, companies saying, geez, I, I want to buy carbon credits and sort of voluntary organizations spring up to say, um, you know, we will provide the oversight and the rules for creating these projects and, and transferring these credits. And in theory, that's totally, you know, that's sensible. It's certainly feasible. One can design these rules. The problem is in reality, it's extraordinarily hard to enforce these rules. You know, we, we follow rules when there is a clear uh, punishment for not following them. That's why, you know, rule of law works when in places where we know that if you break break the rules or regulations, there's there's a real downside to doing so. The problem in the voluntary carbon markets is there isn't really mm. that. It's not possible to have that. And so we're in a bit of a sticky spot at the moment with carbon credit markets. On the one hand, they're an important part of this puzzle of addressing climate change and, and, and a powerful instrument for us to use. On the other hand, without the right regulatory infrastructure backed up by, you know, government rule of law, it's unlikely carbon credit markets will develop in any way that's that's productive and actually will ultimately just just confuse everybody and not not be very successful. Yeah, it's certainly so a this, bet, this though, is a isn't bit it? of a, a challenge because you would expect you know we've we talked about them on the the show as well. You know, there is the idea that at some point these voluntary markets can become compliance markets. That's right, and you that's know, right, and, and, yeah. and certainly the cap the cap, as you say, is interesting comment you know it actually works better than a tax and i kind of reminded of you know the, the the daycare that starts charging parents for turning up late they they find out more parents turn up late because you know people like to you know, it's right. now it's now a charge <laughs> rather than you know so um yeah it yeah. wouldn't change behaviors we just all feel a bit better about putting you know gas in our car but just, just exactly yeah do they also represent a good investment in the sense that if you if people invest in carbon credits that presumably then drives up the price of the carbon, so it has the positive effect of making emitters pay, you know, want to reduce faster. And also, if you believe that carbon is, as has been stated on this podcast before, the ultimate commodity, that the price of carbon is going to rise over time as well. Just I know we don't have too much time left, but 
you know, what's, what's your thought on that as an investment opportunity? Well, in theory, that's absolutely correct. The, the hard part as an investor is, is what carbon, in other words, what credits do you actually invest in? In other words, you want to invest in a carbon credit that's going to actually be, be turn out to be to to to, to uh, represent an actual reduction in greenhouse gas emissions. So that is what we call environmental integrity. It actually reduced the emissions, and market participants recognize that and are willing to pay for it. And that's sort of stating the obvious. But the problem is with many of these carbon credits, it's unclear that in fact there was any real reduction, or there is any real reduction, and when you look too closely at the project, you go, you know, I'm not sure this is actually helping us address climate change. And therefore, I'm not sure I should really pay much for it. And the, the way to sort of see that in, in action is if you look at the prices of carbon credits in the compliance markets where, where governments are making the rules and comparing the prices in the voluntary markets, there's a dramatic difference. And yet it's the same commodity. As you said, the ultimate commodity is is, is, is a ton of carbon. They should be the same price. They should be roughly fungible, right? But they're not, and that's because of that that essentially regulatory risk in the voluntary markets. These these credits actually aren't aren't worth. It. Thanks for that. So, final, I guess, as we wrap up, you you kind of end the book, and it's basically a pay on a, a you know a call to, to call to action for investors because the alternatives to tackling climate change is really consume less, abandon GDP growth, and you point out in the book that you know what we saw from COVID, the, the calamitous impact of reducing GDP rapidly, controlling population, which has all sorts of really unpalatable outcomes, and then sort of adapt. And, and you point out that all of these are, things are going to happen to some extent or will happen per force you know, in the case of GDP and population as when these effects start to really take root. But we're probably in a very different world by then. And I guess I just, you know, you then you make the case for investing and why all of us as individuals and as companies and then as professional um, money managers should you know, need to be very aware of not only sort of all the terminology and the options that you sort of walk through, but also actually the reason behind it and the thesis, because this is going to be so consequential to our future. So I just I kind of wanted to get you to end up there and just sort of give us your sort of thesis there. Yeah, and the thesis is really, really kind of simple, and maybe some people would say it's 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 too optimistic. But the reality, based on what you know, the research I've done I, over over two decades now, is that the only way we address climate change is through decarbonizing the global economy. The only way to decarbonize the global economy is through investing in 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 low emissions and eventually zero emissions products, and therefore. The, what investors do, their actions are really going to make all the difference here. At the same time, those actions, investing in decarbonization, will also ultimately benefit those investors over time. It will improve their risk adjusted returns over time because that's the way the world is going. An analogy I use sometimes when I give talks, but I, I didn't use it. Well, I, I mentioned the book, though I didn't get too deep into it. Is if you think back, say, you know, 30 years ago and sort of whispered in someone's ear as an investor, this is what you need to know for the next 30 years, the macro trend that's going to change everything. You would have said technology, specifically digital technologies are going to change everything. And if you now look at where we are today and look forward 30 years, 
what I'm whispering investors' ears essentially in writing the book is climate change is going to change everything. That doesn't mean it's easy to invest. <laughs> There's a lot in there. And then the final chapters are right about the challenges as an investor with these long-term trends and that it's it's very hard for us to sort of think so far ahead. But they will change the will of investing. They will change the will of, of business. And ultimately, investor actions will change the course of climate change. And that's how I wrap up the book. Well, it's a fantastic read, Investing in an Era of Climate Change by Columbia University Press. Bruce, thanks very much for uh, for coming on the show and, and sharing it with us. I, I, again, I recommend the book thoroughly. We'll put links to it in the show notes, and it's available on all uh, at all good bookstores. Well, thank you very much. It's a real, real pleasure being on the show. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and want to support the show, please give us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. To find out more about HC Insider and HC Group, a search and advisory firm dedicated to the commodity markets, visit our website at www.hcgroup.global. There you can find out more about our services and our offices around the world. There you can also find more content from interviews to insight pieces to more podcasts focused on the commodity value chains. Thanks again for listening.